The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. to the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast with your host, Nick Bat. Sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. And Bruce Nolan. I once worked with a guy for three years and never learned his name. Best friend I ever had. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. Along with me, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. And we hope that you enjoyed our episode yesterday with Mr. Joe Marino, where Joe and Bruce pretended to be scouts trying to pitch me an uninformed GM on the correct picks that we should make uh, as we went through a mock draft simulation from the Draft Network's website. I thought it was a lot of fun. I think it is unique. I think it was something that we haven't heard anyone else do that sort of thing, mostly because I don't know what the hell's going on, and I don't know anything about these draft prospects. So I can legitimately play dumb and just make a make a make a choice based on the pitch that you guys made. So I thought that was a I thought that was a great success, and kudos to you, Bruce. That was your idea. Yeah, it was. It was. It ended up being better than I thought it was going to be, and it, it's not surprising. I mean, Joe does unbelievably great work over there at the Draft Network, and it's, you know, Bills Mafia is very, very fortunate to have someone like that who does locked on Bills. You know, if locked on Bills was being done by somebody who didn't have the the draft cachet and the draft knowledge that Joe does, I think that we would all be less informed for it. So I think that we're all just a, a little bit blessed to be able to have that access as a resource and just just trying to go toe to toe with someone like that is is difficult enough. I had to had to get a little uh, had to get a little dirty to try and uh, try and win that one. I ended up losing, but you know what? I didn't go down without a fight. No, that's true, and it was a respectable loss too. So. What we want to do today is something that we have done before. This was a very – I shouldn't say this. I, I'm going to describe it incorrectly. This was one of my favorite things that we did back whenever we were the Bills Backers podcast before we joined Buffalo Rumblings and became the Nick and Nolan show. And that was we went through and did the top five prospects at positions of need for – well, your top five prospects, I should say, at positions of need that the Bills may have an opportunity to get in either the first or second round in last year's draft. And I thought it was incredibly informative. We, I, I left that with some draft crushes that I didn't have beforehand. Most probably notably, Dalton Reisner was somebody who I fell in love with based on your descriptions. Uh, we got some really colorful and uh, interesting descriptions of guys, and I, I'm excited to do that again. But it's a little bit different because we're not picking at number nine overall. The first pick that we have is number 54. So do you want to maybe lay out some parameters as far as what this is going to be like compared to last year? Yeah, so we're still going to go through the rankings. We're still going to go my top rank this, my top rank that, but we're not going to spend a lot of time going through the scouting reports that I've written on the players that the Bills are not likely to pick because we 
we don't have that much time. And we want to make sure that although this is a rankings podcast, it's also a Bill's salient ranking podcast. And so I usually try, my goal every year is to try and get 250 people ranked and written down. And so I know who they are. And I have this fun game I play with my wife. And uh, as we get into day three of the draft, we try to see when the first pick is going to come off the board where I don't know who that player is or I didn't get to them. I don't have anything written down on them. And so one year I, I didn't get basically anything done. I think it was 2016. I didn't get anywhere near as much work done as I normally did. And I think the first person who came off the board who I didn't know anything about was like the like the seventh pick in the fourth round or something. And I was really embarrassed. But every time, every year I try and get, try and push it back farther and farther and farther and farther. But this year I was horribly ill about two weeks ago, and that has put me markedly behind. I don't think I'm going to get 250 players looked at. Um, I would, I would like to get over, like to finish somewhere between 200 and 215, but I'm not going to get to 250. But I do have enough players where I feel comfortable being able to have a discussion about the players who are on my rankings, who would be possibilities at 54, and we can talk through specifically that pick because you know that's that's our that's our first pick this year so that has the same amount of emotional salience as the number nine overall pick did last year all right great and and i do appreciate you you know we we went back and forth about how we were going to do this because i think that there's a certain section of our if we think about our our audience like a venn diagram right there are people who only really care about things in so much as they affect the bills and then there are people who care about things that affect outside the bills and that are, you know, draft oriented and things like that. And so we are going to try to wind up where that Venn diagram overlaps by spending the most time talking about prospects who realistically, based on how they are ranked and what people think about them, which you have a pretty good pulse on, whether or not they're going to be potential picks at 54. Or maybe if they fall way lower, which you know could happen at that point in the draft, if they wind up actually being available in the third round, or if the Bills are able to trade back up into later in the second round and grab these guys. So the positions which we are going to go through for your rankings are running back, offensive tackle, offensive guard, edge, and corner. So we are not going to dig into wide receiver, even though yesterday, Bruce, during the mock draft with Joe Marino, you thought for a hot second about making a case for LaVisca Chenault at 54. I did. I think that, you know, with the 54th overall pick, one of the strategies is that you can take a player who would be a first round pick under different circumstances. It's a little bit like, you know me, I'm a big buy low guy. From a, from a standpoint of free agency, I'm a big buy low guy. And, you know, when you when you're not risking a first round pick, when it's not that that prized coveted asset of the first round pick, I'm a lot more likely to buy low on someone. I made the argument for Lucas Niang for the same reason. I think Lucas Mann is a first round prospect. And I think that if he hadn't had the hip injury and it kind of affected him this year, I think he would have been a first round talent. And now we combine that with a, a historic offensive tackle class this year, especially relative to what we've had in the last couple of years, which have not been great, Bob. Not great, Bob. I think that, you know, Lucas Niang is one of those buy low guys and LaVisca Chenault is one of those buy low guys. I feel a lot better with LaVisca Chenault at 54 than I do at 22. You know, taking a risk on a player like that, hoping he comes in and is the number one receiver, which is what we were hoping he was going to be, right? Come in and be a, a top three receiver and be a, a versatile offensive weapon with the injury problems that he's had is a lot different than, hey, we're taking this guy as wide receiver four to give us that little extra oomph. Like what you're, it's a little bit like picking players in a vacuum versus picking players who you know what you're going to ask them to do. If I'm going to ask LaVisus Schnault to be a number one receiver walking in the door, that's that's not something that really interests me that much because of the injury problems and because of the raw route running and because this is going to be a weird offseason. And so LaVisca Chenault is someone who might be harmed by this weird offseason more than some. But if you're going to ask him to come in as wide receiver four, take Isaiah McKenzie's job the second he walks off the bus and give you a bigger, more physical presence with a little gadget action. Sure, that's a lot different. You know, it's it's a little bit like whether you like somebody as a player in the first round or whether you like them in the third round. Right? That changes the things a lot. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about. All right. Well, let's jump right in and let's talk about the running backs. This is a 
You know, we're not going to bury the lead here. This is a sexy option, right? These are touchdown makers. That's one of the things that Brandon Bean said he wanted to add to this team. He, he's done so with Stefan Diggs. There's no doubt about it. And there's been some conversation that the Bills could potentially go running back at 54. So why don't you tell us the guys uh, – you can go through the guys who are ranked. Tell us the guys that you really just don't think there's a chance in hell that they're going to be at 54. And then the top, however many you want to share, that you think do have an opportunity to be at 54, and, and then we can go into them. Just give us the overview. Give us the list first. Number one, J.K. Dobbins, Ohio State. Number two, DeAndre Swift, Georgia. Number three, Jonathan Taylor, Wisconsin. Number four, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, LSU. Number five, Cam Akers, Florida State. This is a weird, weird discussion because there there doesn't seem to be a consensus number one running back in this class. If It depends on the flavor. My RB1 is J.K. Dobbins. Other people's is Jonathan Taylor. Other people's is DeAndre Swift. And so typically one of those three is going to be your RB1, but the top five, there's a chance that one of them could be on the board of 54. There's a chance that two of them could be on the board of 54. There's a chance that none of them could be on the board of 54. So I think it's actually wise for us to talk about all five, believe it or not, because there's a chance based on how the NFL interprets their flavor that they could be different than our opinions. For example, I have a feeling based on what I, I hear from, from Daniel Jeremiah and some people who are plugged in across the league that the league is not quite as high on J.K. Dobbins as I am. That doesn't mean he's not going to be a, you know, a first-round pick or a high second-round pick. That just means he might not be the first guy off the board. And for me, he's RB1. The thing that stands out to me about J.K. Dobbins is that J.K. Dobbins just consistently makes all the right decisions. He's someone who presses the line of scrimmage really well, and when he does, he doesn't make poor decisions with his footwork. He He's not hesitant when he's pushing the line of scrimmage. He plants his foot and he goes. He's not someone with a ton of shake in him when it comes to the second level. I don't think that J.K. Dobbins is the kind of guy who's going to be matched up one-on-one -on -one with, a, with a free safety in space and is going to shake him out of his, his jeans and get another 30 yards. But he's a very efficient one-cut runner. I think he would excel in a zone blocking scheme, I know we do a lot more gap power schemes here at, in Buffalo, but J.K. Dobbins is someone who just consistently makes the right decisions. He doesn't make wrong decisions. And when you combine that efficiency with the ability to hit the long ball, which J.K. Dobbins has, that's rare. A lot of people can make sure you don't get negative yards, right? They can make sure that your negative runs turn into four-yard runs. That's not an uncommon trait, but... Pairing that with the idea to also get big runs. Sometimes the idea is to hit home runs. And that idea that, oh man, my running back's really going to hit home runs. And that comes with it sometimes getting negative plays. Barry Sanders, of course, famously ran for a ton of negative plays because he was always looking for that home run and he was able to get it a lot of the times. So he got the home run or he'd get tackled for negative four yards. CJ Spiller was like that. But when you combine the fact that he doesn't take a lot of negative runs, with the fact that he can hit the long ball, that's a rare combination. And J.K. Dobbins, clearly RB1 on my board. A lot of people are going to be different. Some people don't have him in their top four. But for me, RB1, J.K. Dobbins. Okay, so tell us about DeAndre Swift. DeAndre Swift might be the best receiving running back in the draft. He might not necessarily be the best route runner. I think Clyde Edwards Alaire is probably the best route runner. But as far as natural hands, I'm not sure what to do with my hands. I think that he can play in the pass game as a as a blocker as well. He is someone who you just don't have to take off the field ever. He could be an RB1 bell cow, never take him off the field. He could be Frank Gore, right? Early Frank Gore, not late Frank Gore. And he can do everything you want to do. I, I worry a little bit about the long ball questions with his long speed. And there is some ball security issues with DeAndre Swift. But I think Joe Marino from the Draft Network has talked about DeAndre Swift's process and the fact that when you come into the Georgia football program, there's a specific schedule that you adhere to. And DeAndre Swift liked the heavier schedule. He liked that regimented work so much. He just kept doing it even when he didn't have to. Even when he graduated past the need to do that thing and it was no longer required at Georgia, he kept doing it anyway because that's how process he is from a, a, a character standpoint. Everything you could possibly want. Jake Fromm did not make the Georgia offense go. This is really important. Jake Fromm facilitated the Georgia offense, but 
the people who made the Georgia offense go have been the running backs over the last couple of years, right? They have been, they have churned out some very, very, very good running backs. Obviously, Todd Gurley is the most notable one, but Nick Chubb was significant. Sony Michelle, you know, and when you have a, a running back like DeAndre Swift, who actually took the role of two people, you know, Nick Chubb's been a good running back in the NFL. Sony Mitchell's been a good running back in the NFL. DeAndre Swift took both their jobs when they left. When they left, he did both their jobs. No timeshare there, not like there was before. And DeAndre Swift is just a well-rounded back. I don't think he's got the ceiling of someone like Jonathan Taylor or someone like J.K. Dobbins, but the floor is crazy high for DeAndre Swift. I just I can't fathom a scenario where DeAndre Swift is not a good running back in the NFL. I, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that he could be a bust for me because he knows how to run in so many different schemes and he trusts his offensive linemen. Now, good news is he had a reason to trust his offensive linemen. He has two potential top 60 picks on his bookends with Isaiah Wilson, who we'll talk about later, and Andrew Thomas. And so he had reason to trust them. They were very good, but he can run inside outside zone. He can run gap power. He can catch the ball in the backfield. He can block. He can do what you need to do. And although the ceiling might not be quite as sexy, the floor is crazy high. All right, let's go into Jonathan Taylor. Jonathan Taylor, from a pure running standpoint, is everything you want. Everything you want. The vision is absolutely there. The long ball is there. He can shake people. He can run over people. As a pure runner, right? So we talked about the versatility of DeAndre Swift. But as a pure runner, Jonathan Taylor might be the best pure runner in this class. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Now, he has ball security questions as well, but he also has workload questions. He's carried the ball a ton in college, and there's some questions as to how well he's going to play in the receiving game. But just as a pure running back, if you want someone who's more of an Adrian Peterson, I'm not saying that Jonathan Taylor is Adrian Peterson. I'm saying Adrian Peterson is that pure running back. Never got super involved in the past game was never somebody who was super well utilized as a receiver or split out of the backfield, things like that. But just as a pure running back, if that's what you're looking for, let's line somebody up in the backfield. Let's get under center. Let's hand him the ball. Let's have him pick a lane and let's have him go. Let's have him match one-on-one against safety. He can make them miss the way that J.K. Dobbins might not be able to, or he can run them over because he's got rare athletic ability as a pure runner. Jonathan Taylor's probably the best runner in this class. Now, there is also, like I said, some questions. Can he be a receiving back? Can he fix the fumble problems? Is the load going to be an issue? Is he somebody where he might be better off in a timeshare because of the load management problems? We don't know. But if you just were drawing a running back up physically and you were saying, listen, running back traits only. Okay, no versatility, no ability to catch the ball or anything like that. Just pure running back traits. And you were building one, you build one that looked like Jonathan Taylor. Is there a separation here in like tiers between those three and the next two? Yes. Okay. So that's that's kind of what I have been hearing people say. And that's we had a conversation with Ryan Talbot and Matt Perino from New York Upstate Syracuse.com. And, you know, kind of that was where I sort of planted my flag. And I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that I was, you know, in the same ballpark on that. But it does seem to be that there is there is a thought of, of Dobbins, Taylor and Swift being of a certain caliber. And then you've got Akers and, and Edwards Alaire and maybe, you know, others, if, if people think particularly highly of somebody. But go ahead and tell us about who's next. It's, it's Edwards Alaire, right? Yeah, Clyde Edwards-Alaire is uh, Daniel Jeremiah's second-ranked running back. Say what? If that tells you anything about how kind of messed up this whole thing is. And I think that this archetype, this running back, somebody who runs in a four sixes but is shifty, can receive the ball, can stop on a dime, can be quicker than fast, has vision, runs crisp routes, there's becoming an archetype that is accepted in the NFL for this skill set. Devontae Freeman was someone like that. Devin Singletary was someone like that. If you want Devin Singletary with a little more juice, hell yes. Clyde Edwards-Alaire is your guy. He's probably a better route runner too. 
I mentioned he might be the better route runner, best runner, route runner at running back in this class. He's someone you can split out wide and say, yes, I understand he's not gonna he's not gonna run past a ton of guys at four six. You and I talked about Jawan Jennings yesterday with Joe about how he runs a four seven two, and that's not really Clyde Edwards Alaire's game. However, he can stop on a dime. He is explosive and he is agile, even if he's not necessarily fast per se. And so if you're looking for someone who you can swap in and out independently with Devin Singletary and keep the defense guessing as to what it is you're doing because you're not tipping your hand, if you put Jonathan Taylor on the field, you're tipping your hand a little bit. Now, it might not matter because good to say, if you're putting Adrian Peterson on the field, you're probably tipping your hand, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you can stop him because of how talented he is. But Clyde Edwards-Alaire is this weird archetype of new running back that has a place in the NFL. These guys, these running backs, you and I talked about this when Devin Singletary got drafted. I'm okay if you run a 4-6 as a running back. I'm not really that upset because the opportunities by which I need you to take a 40-yard run and turn it into 70 are just so crazy rare in the NFL that I'd much rather have you be able to take a three-yard carry and make it eight yards because those happen more often than the 40-yard carry and make it 70. And so, Yes, he'll get caught from behind occasionally, but he's an excellent receiving back, doesn't tip your hand at all, and he's someone who straight up, if you listen to Joe Burrow talk about Clyde Edwards-Alaire, he raves. Joe Burrow finds a reason to inject that name in his conversation because of how important he was to that offense in Carolina. And so, not in Carolina, goodness gracious, I was thinking about Joe Brady who went to Carolina, but at LSU... Clyde Edwards-Lair was a big part of that offense. Now, they also had some great receivers. Lamar Chase is coming out in 2021. He's going to be a top receiver prospect there. Justin Jefferson might be a first-round pick. He went 21 to the Eagles in our mock draft yesterday. So they had offensive talent, but consistently you hear the name talked about from Joe Burrow, Clyde Edwards-Lair. Okay, and let's finish it up with Cam Akers from Florida State, right? Yes, Cam Akers from a pure runner standpoint is it's really sad when you look at Cam Akers because he has all the traits necessary to be a good running back, but the Florida State offensive line was just abysmal, and Willie Taggart is not the coach anymore at Florida State for very obvious reasons, one of which was just just some strange run game decisions that Willie Taggart made. And so Cam Akers was literally put in the worst worst possible position. So if you want to try and buy low on someone for a different reason than injury, Cam Akers is your guy. If Cam Akers you know, went to Wisconsin, it'd be a little different. If Cam Akers was at LSU, things might have been a little different. And so this is an opportunity to really buy low on a dynamic player, physically just looks the part, right? Has everything you want, height, weight, speed, has everything that you want. I am worried about the long-term effects. I am worried a little bit he's going to get David Card. And what I mean by that is I mentioned earlier that DeAndre Swift really trusts his offensive lineman, and that's great. I wonder if Cam Akers is not going to trust his offensive line in the NFL because of how badly he was burned at Florida State and how bad that offensive running scheme was. I'm worried that someone like him is going to, you're essentially getting a, a a, a ball of traits at that point and you're trying to turn them back into a running back because he has the traits to be able to do it but he was so badly damaged by what happened at Florida State that it comes with it a fair share of upside because there's a comfort level and there's a trust and there's a nuance and a rhythm you hear running backs talk about getting into a rhythm in the league as you start to get more carries and you call the same play multiple times and you see the same blocking schemes develop in front of you multiple times, there gets to be a comfort level there. And he just never was able to get it at Florida State, but he has all the traits, but you're not getting necessarily the most complete running back. You're getting maybe the most complete set of traits. He can do all the things, but there is a concern there for me with Cam Akers as to whether or not he'll he'll go Trent Richardson on me, right? Trent Richardson was a collection of wonderful traits who was an absolutely horrendous NFL running back. He just always made the wrong decisions. He picked the wrong hole. Giggity. He juked when he was supposed to jag. He went left when he was supposed to go right. And he just never was able to get in sync with his offensive lines, no matter where he went, because his vision just wasn't good. His predictive vision was not good. And 
I don't think that was necessarily a problem for Acres. However, I'm worried it might be a problem moving forward. So for me, there's a clear tier that stops after Dobbins, Swift, Taylor. If any one of the three of them are on the board at 54, man, that's going to be a tough call. You're going to be tough to pry me away from one of those three. But I'll level with you. If it's Clyde Edwards-Alaire at 54, I'm okay with it. If it's Cam Akers at 54, I'm okay with it. If it's Dobbins, Swift, Taylor at 54, I'm excited about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be great. Okay. What position group do you want to do next? I mean, we've got two offensive line positions in corner. So what do you want to do? Let's do offensive tackle. You want to do tackle. Okay. So who are the guys? Are are there tackles that you just think there's no chance in hell they're going to be there at 54? Yeah, we'll just go through the list real fast. Uh, Jedrick Wills, offensive tackle, Alabama. Tristan Wirfs, Iowa. Makai Becton, Louisville. Andrew Thomas, Georgia. Josh Jones, Houston. Those are the top five. None of them, I think, will be there at 54. However, starting at number six, they might be. Number six, Lucas Niang, Texas Christian, right tackle. Ezra Cleveland, Boise State, left tackle. And Isaiah Wilson, University of Georgia, right tackle. Filling out the top 10 is Prince Tega Wanahoe and Austin Jackson. Prince Tega Wanahoe. Uh, and Austin Jackson. Austin Jackson's from USC. So Prince Diego is from Auburn. So what I want to talk about, the three I want to go over are Lucas Niang, Ezra Cleveland, and Isaiah Wilson. And those are numbers what? Six, seven, and eight. Okay. So you expect five to go before 54. I do. And there's a chance that that one or two or three of these people are not there at 54. But if you would ask me the people who I think have a chance to be there at 54, who I'd be interested in talking about, those are the three. Okay. All right. So start with number six. What was the name again? Lucas Niang. I talked about him yesterday. I made an impassioned plea to you to pick him instead of Jeremy Chin. You ignored my plea and went with the infinitely more talented Joe Marino's take. But I'm going to make another pitch right here in a vacuum. And that is Lucas Niang in a reasonable offensive line class without extenuating circumstances would be a first round pick. The hip injury caused him to take a very, very weird pass set in 2019. He did this weird hot move when he stepped back from his pass set and he got a lot more vertical than he was really supposed to get because he was kind of protecting the hip. But he has the length, he has the mobility, and he put really good tape on film against Joey Bosa and Chase Young. Joey Bosa, number two overall pick last year. Chase Young, probable number two overall pick this year. So I've seen him against excellent players. Sometimes you wonder, you know, okay, well, how's he going to play against upper echelon conversation? I've seen him against upper echelon competition and he's played well. Now he was better in 18 than he was in 19. There's the hip injury to concern. He's also a little bit light when it comes to the bottom half of him. He's not quite as thick in the thighs. People, uh, people talk about bubble butts and they want you to have a lower anchor and be able to be thicker down there to be able to anchor a little bit better. He doesn't have that quite yet. I think he was a better pass blocker than run blocker in 18. In 19, it was it was a little mixed bag when it came to that. But this is a this is a player who I think is one of those buy low players where in a normal year, a talent like this, without the hip injury and without the crazy offensive tackle class we've had, just quick aside, the Houston Texans giving up two first round picks for Laramie Tunsil looks moronic now like totally moronic based on the offensive tackle class that this this year. But stepping back into it, this is a really, really good offensive tackle class. And if it wasn't for that class strength and the hip thing, I think he'd be a first round pick. So it's a rare opportunity to get someone who has that level of talent at 54. Okay. So who is number seven? Ezra Cleveland, Boise State left tackle. Ezra Cleveland is the anti-Isaiah Wilson. We're going to talk about these two back-to-back, and it's going to be very interesting because they are essentially mirror images of each other. Ezra Cleveland is an unbelievable athlete. I mean, just, I mean, very clearly would dominate you on the basketball court. I mean, crazy athletic. I mean, posted the high nines in relative athletic score with his 40-yard dash and his explosive traits and the 20-yard split and the 10-yard split. And... He is a crazy 
athlete. He has really patient hands, keeps them low. He has really good chronology. He always gets out in front of you and then shoots. We talk about chronology when it comes to press coverage, about how to always feet than hands, feet than hands, feet than hands. There's a lot of parallels between offensive line play and defensive back play. And one of them is what I, I always call chronology. And it's feet, then hands, feet, then hands. And when you try to shoot hands first before your feet are in position, you end up lunging and then you're out of position. But because he's such a good athlete, he can mirror you without touching you. He doesn't have to worry about it. So he can shoot his hands crazy late if necessary and still get them in your chest because of how good of an athlete he is and how he's able to mirror you in space. Here's the problem. Ezra Cleveland lacks very significantly in functional play strength. Ezra Cleveland is a great athlete who just isn't strong enough. He gets bold over sometimes. He doesn't anchor down well. He's not super big, right? He's one of those players where, man, he's a fantastic athlete, but you wonder, is he going to get stronger? Because it's a very, very, I mean, power, drive, strength. He's not pushing anybody off the ball. And this isn't a minor concern like it was for like Joe Thomas coming out. Joe Thomas was never a mauler in the run game. I talked about that when I talked about Andre Dillard last year. Do you remember my Andre Dillard and Joe Thomas discussion when it came about dancing bears and positional run blocking? That was a scenario where I'm not even sure you're going to get positional level run blocking from Ezra Cleveland right off the bat in the NFL because He's someone who really just, you're going to hope he's just going to kind of get in the way when it comes to run blocking because he doesn't have the power to be able to drive people off the line of scrimmage, roll his hips into contact and make an explosive pop to be able to jar somebody back. He doesn't have that. That's not who he is. He's a really athletic guy who's going to get in your way. And if that's what you want on your left tackle, that's great. But it's the mirror image of the number eight tackle on my board, which is Isaiah Wilson, University of Georgia, right tackle. Holy mother of Troy. Take everything I just said about Ezra Cleveland and flip it on its head. Isaiah Wilson is all every single bit of 350 pounds, Nick. Every bit of 350 pounds and six foot six. Just an absolute enormous man, 35 and a half inch arms, 10 and a quarter inch hands, six foot six, 350 pounds. Now, with that size comes an absolutely abysmal 20 yard shuttle. I mean, just in the in in the eighth percentile level of of uh of 20 yard shuttles i mean really 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 bad but just such a big broad right tackle prospect i mean huge guy and you and i talked about the fact that length and foot speed are balances last year when we talked about cody ford if you have less of one you need more of the other that's the way this works those two things are related if you have really good foot speed as a tackle you can get away with less length. If you have a really good length, you can get away with less foot speed. We saw this from Cordy Glenn. We talked about it ad nauseum when it comes to Cody Ford. This is a scenario where he has the length. He knows how to use it. Yes, he can be behind in his kick step. He can be behind in his mirroring, but he's so long and he's so big. He's like, listen, dude, just, just get around me. It's going to take you three and a half seconds to get around me. And at that point, the quarterback's already got rid of the ball. This is a scenario where... He has all of the physical tools to absolutely maul you. If you want to move Cody Ford inside to right guard and you want to have the right side of your line absolutely collapse people, you take Isaiah Wilson at 54. Now, I'm not entirely sure he's going to be there. There was some discussion. I saw something on Twitter a week or so ago that somebody thought he would go ahead of Andrew Thomas. I'll level with you. If you take Isaiah Wilson ahead of Andrew Thomas, you're insane. But... They like his size and his length so well that they think, goodness gracious, he's still new to football. For goodness sake, he had two seasons of college football experience. This is someone who already knows how to use his length really well for a guy his size and use his size really well, and he's still learning. That's very exciting as a prospect. However, you have to deal with the fact that 
When you're 6'6 and 350 pounds, you move like you're 6'6 and 350 pounds. There's a 35-pound difference between someone like him and someone like Ezra Cleveland, someone like Lucas Niang. This is a serious, serious run blocker on the right side. And I think the length gives him ability and pass protection, but the, the offensive tackles who have succeeded with 20-yard shuttles that poor are rare. But to be fair... People who are 6'6", 350 pounds with 35 and a quarter, 35 and a half inch arms, I think. I will oh, give me a second here. Yeah, 35 and a half inch arms. Those people are rare anyway. So you're already having a subsection of a subsection. And he's a very exciting prospect. If he's there at 54 and he's the pick, man, that's that's a balling offensive line. All right. Um, why don't we take a quick break? We've gone through two of the four positions, right? We've gone through running backs and tackles. We're going to still do guards and corners. So we'll take a quick break. We'll come right back and then we'll jump into the last uh, the last two positions. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan show. I am Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. I'm Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. Okay, so we have put those guys out there for everybody. If there was a, you know, if there was one guy of the, what we talked about eight so far, if there was one guy of the eight, the three tackles in the five running backs that you would be most excited about getting at 54, who would it be? Oh, it's gotta be JK Dobbins. It's gotta be the person who's RB one on my board. RB one has to mean something, right? And so if, if he's RB one and he's there at 54 and we take him, I think that's immediately the best backfield in the NFL. Boy, that escalated quickly. That's how good I think that that that's how good I think that they are. I think that immediately jumps Baltimore, that jumps some other teams for having the best running back pairs in the NFL, the best backfield. And so J.K. Dobbins, if you're going to continue to run the ball the way that we've run the ball, if you're not going to make Josh Allen throw the ball 43 times a game, then you're going to have to have more than one running back because I don't want uh, a player of T.J. Yeldon's caliber touching the ball 200 times a year. But that upgrade from TJ Yeldon touching the ball 200 times a year to having J.K. Dobbins take those 200 touches instead, that's very exciting for me. And I'm not a huge take a running back high guy. But, I mean, if you get RB1 at 54, I mean, that's insane value. You have to be excited about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that sounds ideal to me. I mean, I, I like the idea of Taylor, but I – Dobbins, you know, is Dobbins number one? Is there any chance that he's number one on your board because he's an Ohio State guy? You're an Ohio no. State fan and there's some, you know, you've watched everything that he's ever done. No, I do a really good job of separating that stuff out. You mentioned earlier in this podcast that there's a Venn diagram between our listeners, people who are uh, draft people who happen to be Bills people or people who are Bills people and they look at the draft through a Bills lens. That actually is a weird kind of overlap with you and I. I am a football fan who happens to like the Bills. You're a Bills fan who likes football because the Bills play football. And so that's a weird diagram when it comes to that. I separate out those things in my head pretty well when it comes to those players. I mean, it's not like I've got, you know, Benjamin Victor in my top 10 wide receivers, you know what I mean? Or Austin Mack, who are both Ohio State people. It's not like I have, we're actually going to talk about another Ohio State player here in a second when it comes to the interior offensive line. But I, I, I like to think that is not polluting me at all. It's just, I have... I have less questions about J.K. Dobbins than any other player. I don't have concerns about him in the receiving game. I don't have concerns about his ball security. I don't have concerns about him being able to hit the big. I I like players without a ton of question marks, and I don't have a ton of question marks with J.K. Dobbins, and that's why he's RB1. Very good. So let's go ahead and do the guards. Since we already did the tackles, we'll stay in the offensive line room. How many guards do you think are going to go before 54? I think there's a reasonable chance that two of them are off the board, maybe three or four, but we're going to go, we're going to skip over two. We're going to go Cesar Ruiz first off and Lloyd Cushenberry. Cesar Ruiz from Michigan, Lloyd Cushenberry from LSU. Those are players who are number one and number two on my interior offensive line board, but we're going to talk about two interior offensive linemen. And the first one is Jonah Jackson from Ohio State, who's number three on the interior offensive line board for me. He has good feet. He squares well. He shows excellent, excellent awareness and finds work and pass blocking. Now, his hands get a little wide sometimes for me. And sometimes I feel like he gets a little too tall. 
but he's got really good torque to be able to make up for being too tall. But I think there are some technique things that need to be helped with Jonah Jackson. But Jonah Jackson is one of those players where if you get him at 54, he doesn't alter what you can do like Isaiah Wilson or Ezra Cleveland does. He's not a scheme specific interior offensive lineman. He's someone you can plug and play. You and I talked about uh, with Joe Marino yesterday, the Ben Bredesen pick and wanting to have a little bit better athleticism on the offensive line to be able to play in space. Jonah Jackson gives you that, but he doesn't give up your ability to play power football. And so I really like Jonah Jackson. Jonah Jackson is a top 50 player for me overall. And if we get him at 54, I consider that a market upgrade from John Feliciano at right guard. And that's someone who I think is, you know, a scenario where Cesar Ruiz wasn't on the board. If Lloyd Cushenberry wasn't on the board, this is a scenario where Jonah Jackson could be a late first round pick in a lot of drafts. It was poor if it was poor at the interior offensive line. And this draft is not great in the interior offensive line the way it is at the offensive tackle. And so because of that, it kind of pushes a little of these prospects a little bit higher. And so there's a chance Jonah Jackson and the next guy I'm going to talk about could both be off the board at 54, but there's a reasonable chance that they're there. And so I want to talk about him. The next person is Matt Hennessy. He's a center for Temple. Now we wouldn't play him at center. We play him at guard, but just like Eric Wood came in and played guard and played pretty well his first year, the transition, I like picking centers. So this is a Bruceism. I like picking centers and having them play guard. I enjoy that. I think your ability to play center and then when you take a lot of that responsibility of center off their plate, you can actually get a better player than if you took a guard and move them to center than if you took a center and moved them to guard. I like taking centers and moving them to guard. And Matt Hennessy is one of those players. He shows great awareness, shows great lateral movement, really good lateral movement. If you want to play in space a lot more like the Bredesen pick, if you want to develop the screen game, I think Matt Hennessy is a guy who can absolutely do that. I think that he lacks a little bit of that power and a little bit of that drive that you'd like to see. I think that in some ways, Ben Bredesen is a diet Matt Hennessy when it comes to that pick that we made yesterday. But Matt Hennessy is someone who I think... I struggle to imagine a scenario where he doesn't end up Mitch Morse-like at right guard because he's just such a good athlete. He moves well in space. And so if that's the direction you're trying to take your offensive line, I think Matt Hennessy is a very, very reasonable pick at 54. Okay. So, I mean, give us some thoughts here about, uh, I, you know, we whenever you and I had a conversation before we taped this, I was... I said ew or gross or you wolf or gross, something yes. gross. Yeah. We're talking about the Bills potentially taking a guard at 54 because that just, to me, doesn't move the needle. It it's also signals that if the Bills are spending premium on guard, they probably are not very interested in moving Cody Ford because they did just sign Quentin Spain and there's only two guards. So if you draft one at 54, you're probably putting him where John Feliciano is, which means there's no place for Cody Ford to go. I am not a fan of that, right? I, I I want the Bills to be in a position where that move continues to make sense, even if it's not the first choice on the mind of McDermott and Bean and Bobby Johnson. So give us your thoughts on the idea of guard, of tackle, of if one of these guys went at 54, would you be pleased? Would you be disappointed because of what it would mean for other players? Would you be happy just because of the quality of player we're getting, let alone regardless of other people? Or, or where's your head out on that? This is one of the scenarios where you have to meld what you want within the construct of what is realistic. Ideally, what I want is then for them to move Cody Ford to guard and draft a tackle. That's what I want. But you have to understand, I think that they think he's a tackle. We talked about that yesterday. I think that they think Cody Ford's a tackle. You and I mentioned when Cody Ford came out that there are some similarities to Daryl Johnson, who they saw do well at right tackle in Carolina. He was an all pro at right tackle in Carolina. That's a scenario where I think they, they think Cody Ford is a tackle. That's what they think he is. So you almost have to put what you want within the bumpers and the guidelines that are set in reality. And that's where the guard pick at 54 comes into play. If we say, okay, let's assume that's not an option. Let's take that off the table. Let's take the Cody Ford to guard thing off the table because the regime doesn't think he is. 
it'd be it'd be a little bit like if the regime came out and said, we're happy at CB2. I disagree with them, but that's okay. I can disagree with them all the time. That's that's fine. That's part of being a fanalist is what we are. We're analysts who are fans. We're fanalists. Part of that is understanding that you operate within the construct that is built for you by somebody else and their decision-making. And so I'm fine with guard at 54 within that framework, knowing that I think that they think he's a tackle. I'm fine with a guard at 54 because John Feliciano is not, John Feliciano is not so good of a player that he's unable to be upgraded from. And I'm always about offensive linemen. You're going to be hard pressed to ever talk me out of an offensive lineman or a corner. As a general rule, you can't have enough offensive linemen and corners because they affect so much of the game. And so for me, I'm completely fine. If Jonah Jackson's the pick at 54, I'm thumbs up. If Matt Hennessy is the pick at 54, thumbs up. If Isaiah Wilson's the pick, then I'd be shocked, to be honest, because that would indicate that they're probably going to move Cody Ford inside. And I'd be surprised because I think that they think he's a tackle. Okay, let's get into the cornerbacks. So how many corners are, you know, most people saying are pretty, pretty surefire first round picks? So this corner class is really funny. The vast majority of people have Akuda and CJ Henderson as one and two clear first round locks. And then after that, just gets crazy messy. Now, for me, my rankings are a little different. CJ Henderson does not tackle. He does not tackle. He's allergic to tackling. And that's going to knock you down on my board. It's going to. Because I've seen it become a problem. Yes, covering is the vast majority of your job. I get that. But if you are that deficient at a basic aspect of football, it's going to knock you down my board a little bit. For me, number one, Jeffrey Okuda, Ohio State. Number two, Christian Fulton, LSU. Number three, Jeff Gladney, TCU, one of my pre-combine draft crushes, you'll remember correctly. Number four, C.J. Henderson, University of Florida. Number five, Noah Igbenogany, Auburn. Number six, Jalen Johnson, Utah. Number seven, A.J. Terrell, Clemson. Number eight, Damon Arnett, Ohio State. Number nine, Bryce Hall, University of Virginia. Number 10, Amik Robinson, Louisiana Tech. Number 11, Trevon Diggs, Alabama. Now, of the people I just mentioned, the people I think are possible players at 54 are Jalen Johnson, Damon Arnett, Bryce Hall, Amik Robinson, and Trevon Diggs. Those are the people I think are possibilities of 54. If Igbenogany is there, if AJ Terrell is there, I am going to be pounding the table, metaphorically speaking, because there's no table. I will be trying to find Brandon Bean's phone number in the local directory to call him and tell him to take Noah Igbenogany specifically, but also AJ Terrell if he was there. But there's a chance that both Igbenogany and Terrell are both first round picks. This corner class is bonkers, Nick. It is bonkers. After what a lot of people think are the consensus top two, which is Akuda and Henderson, not my top two. But after that, gets super duper messy. Well, let's let's go through how many guys are we going to talk about at 54? Let's talk about Johnson, Arnett, Bryce Hall, Amik Robinson, and Trevon Diggs. Let's talk about five. Okay, go ahead and take it from the top. Okay, so I, I did a pod with uh, Joe Marino. So make sure that you go back to Locked On Bills and you find the pod with Joe Marino about the corner class. I love corners. This has been well established by this point. Jalen Johnson is incredibly sticky, maybe more so than he needs to be, to be honest. Sometimes he tries so hard to be sticky, he actually ends up falling out of phase because of things where he's actually getting a little bit ahead of himself on footwork to try and predict routes. And I worry a little bit about the long speed. I worry that maybe he's maxed out. But Jalen Johnson just moves like a professional corner, Nick. When you watch him move, you're like, yeah, that's a professional athlete. He looks like he's been doing this since he was seven right? There's a specific movement pattern that goes along with playing corner where your hips are in the right place. You stay low out of your breaks. Jeffrey Okuda during the combine was doing a backpedal drill. And I swear it was like watching something that was not safe for work. I mean, it was, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, Nick. When a good corner backpedals like that and is smooth as the transitions and keeps his hip low through the breaks, it is beautiful. It's like poetry. 
And Jalen Johnson moves like that. I do worry about his ability to, to, to play in long speed, but to be honest, the zone coverage schemes that McDermott runs will help him a lot to be able to make plays in the ball and keep things in front of him. Now, Damon Arnett is someone who offers you that versatility from Ohio State. Damon Arnett is somebody who can play inside in the nickel and play outside. And that's really valuable. When you have it a wide receiver, it's valuable. But for some reason, we don't seem to value it as much when it comes to corners, which is kind of dumb. We value the versatility in wide receivers to be able to play in the slot and be able to run lots of different route trees. But we don't value that same thing with the ability to mirror a lot of different route trees. Now, Damon and I didn't have the greatest offseason, didn't have the greatest combine. He was a little bit disappointing in the combine. I think that probably pushed him out of the first round conversation. But Damon Arnett has versatility. He has aggressiveness. He has ball skills. Damon Arnett is, I think, being overlooked and pushed down a little bit because of how good Jeffrey Akuda is on the other side of him at Ohio State. And so I'd be perfectly reasonable with him at 54. My ninth pick is Bryce Hall. We took Bryce Hall at 86 yesterday in our mock draft with Joe Marino. The fact that he was on the board at 86... I'm, I'm pounding the table for Bryce Hall at that point. Bryce Hall has the length that you look for. He's process. He frames well. He squares well. He breaks down to tackle. Again, he just looks like a professional. Now, he had an ankle injury. The long speed is a, is a question for me, mostly because of the ankle injury. I wonder if he's able to answer those questions because when you have the ankle injury and you have lingering things like that, you're not able to answer the questions about your long speed that you have. So if you have a question about your long speed, you have a, a weird scenario where you have, don't have really have the pro days and you have a lingering ankle ankle injury, yeah, the lingering ankle injury. Goodness gracious, Bruce, I can talk. Those things keep you from being able to answer the questions the way you want to. But Bryce Hall's not an overly twitchy athlete. But to be fair, Sean McDermott hasn't had a lot of overly twitchy athletes. Captain Munderland was an overly twitchy athlete. Josh Norman in his prime was not an overly twitchy athlete. These are not Sheldon Brown, Lito Shepard back from the Philadelphia days. These are not overly twitchy athletes, I don't think. So being able to have that length is a value in the scheme. Number 10 is a Meek Robinson. I went through... Um, I went through Jalen Johnson, Damon Arnett, Bryce Hall, Amik Robinson. I am higher on Jalen Johnson than the league, which is why I think there's a greater chance of him being there than there is AJ Terrell, who I actually have at seven. But number 10 is Amik Robinson. Amik Robinson's really significant flaw is his height. He's just under 5'9", Nick. But when Colin Johnson, six foot six wide receiver from Texas, when he goes to bed at night, he checks under his bed for Amik Robinson, Nick. <laughs> That guy is in his head. Amik Robinson, all five foot eight and three quarters of him, absolutely made life miserable for a six foot six receiver. I mentioned on Twitter that if you watch Amik Robinson play from Louisiana Tech and you don't like what you see, I question whether or not you like football because that's a guy who is 100% fearless. If you want a press man coverage corner, a lot of people think he's only a slot guy because of his height. I think he can play on the outside because he's shown he can against bigger receivers. He has ball skills, double-digit interceptions for Amik Robinson over the course of his career. He gets a little over-aggressive sometimes. I wonder how the difference in rules between the college and the program will a pro game will affect him at the next level because he loves to hit people. Amik Robinson loves to get up right in your face and just jack up your gravy. I mean, just really mess with your head. And so I like his aggressiveness. I think his lack of height is a problem, but he's actually fairly long for his height. And he has the ball skills. He didn't play against the highest of competition, but when you see him play against a mid-round receiver in Colin Johnson, that carries weight. And Colin Johnson was getting notably frustrated with Amik Robinson. It was... Robertson, excuse me, it was becoming problematic for him. And so he's my number 10 corner. My number 11 corner is Trevon Diggs. I have a lot lower of a grade on Trevon Diggs than most. And I think we should spend the rest of this time kind of wrapping this up when it comes to Trevon Diggs. Trevon Diggs is a converted wide receiver and he plays like he's a converted wide receiver, Nick. He looks like a converted wide receiver. All that stuff I said about how professional corners have a specific way that they move, Trevon Diggs isn't like that. 
there was a time when he was in off man coverage and he did this weird shuffle where he kind of clicked his heels together like he was trying to go home. And I tell you what, if, the, if it was the LSU game, he was trying to go home because he got torched. He was hoping he could click his heels together and go back home and get away from that game. Get away from Lamar Chase and Justin Jefferson and the rest of that LSU wide receiver core. But Trevon Diggs is a converted wide receiver, and he plays like a converted wide receiver. That's what he does. He's new to the position. Now, that gives him upside. That's a wonderful thing to have. You know, buying low. We talk about buying low a lot. This is an opportunity to buy low. He's still new to the game. If he's got this ball skills, this amount of length, this amount of traits already, and you can teach him the nuances of the game, that's possible, but he's a developmental guy. I'm not low on Trevon Diggs. I just think that when you pick somebody at 54, you're not picking a developmental guy at 54. There's a place in the draft for you to take converted players with developmental traits. It's the back half of day two and early day three. It's Dawson Knox, Nick. Dawson Knox is a converted quarterback. We talked a lot last year about converted quarterbacks and how we all love converted quarterbacks, right? Well, this is a converted wide receiver. So why on earth are we talking about him in the second round when there's a place for conversion projects and it's the third and fourth round? So I like Trevon Diggs. I just like him as what I think he is. And with the idea that he's not there yet, he's not there at all yet. He was a strictly a left side player at Alabama. So they tried to minimize the learning curve by only playing him on one side. So now you've got even more stuff. He doesn't follow people. His run fits aren't necessarily great, but he is a ball of traits, ball skills, athleticism, bloodlines. This is a guy who plays like a converted wide receiver, and that's there's value to that. You, I'd love to be able to take his ball skills and plug them into somebody else because they are excellent, and they should be. He's a converted wide receiver, but there's a place to take Trevon Diggs, and I just don't think it's super high. If you had your pick of all the guys that you mentioned, including the corners and the guards, is J.K. Dobbins still the guy that you would want the most? Oof. If it's J.K. Dobbins and Jalen Johnson there at 54, you're going to have a hard time pulling me away from Jalen Johnson. Is that the only I, other guy who's in who's in competition with him? Probably. I think if it was me, if it was me, I'd probably take Jalen Johnson because I think CB2 is just as significant of a need as RB2. But I think cornerback is a markedly better, markedly more more important position than running back. And I think also the drop-off in in corners, when you get past the third round, Michael Ojemudia in the third round might be your last bastion of hope. You know, I mentioned Bryce Tahal at 86 um, was probably one of your... I didn't think Ojemudia was going to be there later on. Now, Ojemudia ended up being there in our draft in the fourth round. I don't know if he's going to be. I think if you don't take a corner at 54 or 86, you're not getting a CB2. You might get a future CB2, but you're not. But I can get an RB2 with Michael P. Ryan or Michael Warren. I can get these players later on but I can't get a CB2 later on. I would take Jalen Johnson over J.K. Dobbins. I would take CB6 over RB1. Wow. So be it. Well, thank you very much, everybody. We know that this was a, you know, we had two longer pods this week, both of them coming up on an hour or crossing just over. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, hit us up online. Let us know what you think of the pod. Let us know what you think of what Bruce did. I mean, he's he did all the heavy lifting on this one. So this is this is certainly one of Bruce's passion projects, and, and he gets the opportunity to share all of the knowledge that he has spent who knows how many hours compiling over the past year. So we thank you very much for sharing it, Bruce. It certainly helps us all be a little bit smarter and and better viewers and understand what's going on on the draft next week. So please hit us up on Twitter. You can find me at NickBat, N-I-C-K-B-A-T. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. That's right. Please let us know what you think of the podcast there. Leave us an iTunes review or a Stitcher review. If you leave us a Stitcher review, it has to be from a desktop computer, but we would love to see some of those show up there. We only have one as of right now. So please head over there and give us uh, some thoughts about what you think of the podcast there. And as we leave you going into draft week, next week our shows will be dropping on Wednesday and Thursday rather than Thursday and Friday because – 
there's going to be some other breaking news happening on Friday. Who do, you know? Who would have guessed? So we will be dropping a full mock draft podcast on Wednesday and Thursday next week. So keep an eye out for that. And as we leave you going into the weekend where you are getting ready to uh, – the, the anticipation for the draft is just boiling through your veins, right? And you, you, you can't even stop. While the Bills were doing the test run on the Zoom or if it was uh, whatever meeting software they're going to be using for whenever they did the draft, it was crazy. But they, they, they accidentally went live on the Bills website so you could you could watch them do their test. It was very brief, only for a couple of minutes. But one of the things that Brandon Bean said was really, really curious. And uh, I actually was able to grab a quick clip of it before they turned it off and, and fixed the fact that it was being streamed live. And this is what he had to say. I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha. <laughs> <laughs> 